West Legal Ed Center would like to welcome you to The Tangled Web They Weave, Detangling the Web of Nominees, Aiders, and Abettors. To send a question, type in the box below the participation tab. Program materials can be found under your supplements tab. It is my pleasure to introduce our presenters from uh, Secor Law, Carolina Goncalves, Barbara Miranda, and Julieta Lamalfa. I'll return I'll turn the floor over to them now for further introductions. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Barbara Miranda, and I, along with the other panelists, would like to thank you all for joining us today for the last podcast of the Secor Law Summer Series, The Tangled Web They Weave, Detangling the Web of Nominees, Aiders, and Abettors. It is not surprising that someone who owns a valuable asset likely doesn't own it under their own name. And this could be for any number of reasons. It could be due to tax liability or insurance purposes, while at other times it could be for more nefarious reasons, such as to intentionally avoid creditors and others who they have defrauded. This podcast focuses on this last group of people, the fraudsters, who often build complicated webs of nominees, aiders, and abettors to transfer and hide assets so that creditors and other fraud victims can't get to them. The web often involves a number of people who sometimes unknowingly play a role in the fraudster's plan. At other times, these individuals play an active role in assisting the fraudster to conceal their assets. The web can sometimes involve multiple jurisdictions, which presents its own set of challenges. This podcast is meant to introduce you to the types of people who fraudsters often use as their nominees, aiders, and abettors, how to identify them, how fraudsters use them to conceal their assets, and the tools available to develop the web and connect the assets back to the fraudster. Julieta Lamalfa, one of our panelists, will now introduce the presenters. Our presenters today will be Barbara Miranda, Carolina Goncalves, and myself, Julieta Lamalfa. Barbara is an attorney and the Director of Investigations at Secor Law, a financial fraud, insolvency, and asset recovery-focused law firm based in Miami, Florida. Barbara's practice is focused on domestic and international asset tracing and recovery investigations, as well as fraud, corruption, domestic and international judgment enforcement litigation. Prior to joining Secor Law, Barbara worked for an international investigative firm as a licensed investigator conducting and overseeing asset search, due diligence, corruption, country risk, patent infringement, competitive intelligence location and surveillance investigations. In addition, Barbara conducted anti-money laundering compliance reviews in the U.S. and Latin America and assisted in drafting and implementing anti-bribery compliance programs in the wake of identified FCPA or related violations. Barbara is also fluent in Spanish. Carolina Goncalves is also an attorney at Secor Law. She represents individuals, governments, and other entities in a variety of domestic and international matters, such as asset recovery, financial fraud, insolvency, judgment enforcement, 
and other commercial matters. She also has experience in other types of commercial and international litigation matters, including breach of contract, intellectual property, class action, professional liability, FCPA compliance, and other white collar defense cases. Carolina has successfully represented clients before domestic and international tribunals and law enforcement bodies. She is a native Spanish speaker and also speaks Portuguese. In 2021, she was named a Florida Super Lawyers Rising Star. I am Julieta Lamalfa, and I am a director in the Disputes, Compliance, and Investigations practice of Stout. Stout is a global advisory firm and investment bank with offices across the U.S. and abroad. I have over 17 years of experience providing financial and litigation consulting services to clients on a variety of assignments and across multiple industries. As part of my practice, I have assisted clients with forensic and fraud investigations, accounting restatements, and disputes involving the quantification of damages in both national and international matters. These matters include breach of contract and intellectual property ones. Similar to my co-presenters, I am also fluent in Spanish. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We hope you find the information presented valuable and would welcome any questions you may have. If needed, our contact information can be found as part of the presentation deck, which all of our listeners will have access to. To begin, Carolina will first introduce you to a basic factual scenario we often come across in our practices, complete with fictitious characters and entities. We will build on the scenarios we walk you through our approximately one hour program today. Thanks, Julieta. Well, first, let me tell you a little bit more about Julieta's accomplishments that she left out of her introduction. In 2019, the governor of Illinois appointed Julieta to the Illinois Liquor Control Commission. And Julieta also serves on the board of Wintress Bank and she's the treasurer of Instituto del Progreso Latino and Teatro Vista. Julieta is also a Leadership of Greater Chicago Fellow. So as Julieta mentioned, before we get into the heart of our program, we want to introduce you to a basic factual scenario that will form the basis of this podcast. Let's meet our fraudster, S.L. Spoke. Mr. Spoke is a very wealthy citizen of the country of Future Republic, where he operates a multi-million dollar international business conglomerate known as the last order which by all accounts has been incredibly successful for over a decade mr spoke seems to have been reaping the benefits of that success as he's known to drive around in different luxury vehicles dine at the most exclusive restaurants and stay at high-end properties all over the world including in the u.s all of a sudden though the last order becomes insolvent and its creditors are left trying to collect what they're owed Meanwhile, Mr. Spoke's lifestyle hasn't changed at all. As he the last order's creditors are out millions of dollars, but they can't collect against the company because its accounts have been depleted and it allegedly has no assets. They come to you frustrated and desperate for help. How did this happen? And how is Mr. Spoke still jet-setting all over the world? He has a penthouse on the Upper East Side. I can get that asset, right? He has to have U.S. bank accounts. This podcast will give you some insight on how to answer these questions and piece together Mr. Spoke's web designed to conceal his assets. We know that Mr. Spoke is behind the last order, but he doesn't personally owe your clients any money. Let's assume for 
purposes of this podcast that a court from the future republic has entered an order finding that Mr. Spoke used the last order's bank accounts as his own and that he divested the company's assets for his own benefit, such that your clients are now free to go after Mr. Spoke personally to satisfy the last order's debt. Depending on the form of the order and the nature of the case in the future republic, you may have a few options available to help your clients here in the U.S. One of those options is commencing a proceeding under Chapter 15 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. This would be an option if there is an insolvency proceeding pending in the future republic and would allow you to apply for recognition of that proceeding in the U.S. Chapter 15 is discussed in an earlier podcast in the Secor Law Summer Series called Hot Topics and Cross-Border Insolvency. Another option is to file a petition under 28 U.S.C. 1782, which in very general terms allows a litigant from outside the U.S., like your clients from the future republic, to apply to a U.S. court to obtain evidence for use in a pending or reasonably contemplated foreign proceeding. A third option is to apply to a U.S. court for domestication and enforcement of a foreign judgment, which you can do in this case if you have a final judgment from the future republic. For purposes of this podcast, let's assume that you filed a legal action in the U.S. where the court has domesticated or in some fashion recognized the future Republic court order, allowing your clients to collect the debt from both the last order and Mr. Spoke personally. Barbara, can you talk to us about our next steps? Sure. So as previously indicated, Mr. Spoke is known to travel to the U.S. and stay at the same apartment in the Upper East Side. So the first thing you do is an initial investigation on Mr. Spoke and the last order's presence in the U.S. This is to see if you identify any low-hanging fruit or assets directly owned by them that you can easily seize. The findings of your investigation in this case indicate that neither own assets in the U.S. under their names. Thus, you will now look into the apartment that Mr. Spoke is known to frequently stay at when he and his family are in the U.S pull up the property records for the Upper East Side apartment your clients told you about, and it's under the name of a Delaware company called Decidiosa LLC. You find out through other public records that Decidiosa's sole director is a British Virgin Islands entity named Divadera SA. Your clients insist that the penthouse is owned by Mr. Spoke, but neither Decidiosa nor Divadera superficially seem to have any connection with Mr. Spoke, except that they own the apartment where he and his family regularly stay when they're in New York. So what now? Now your job is to determine whether Mr. Spoke is the ultimate beneficial owner or UBO of the Cidiosa, which holds title to the apartment. If he is, you'll have to prove your case in court before you can collect on that asset. Julieta, how hard can it be to prove that Mr. Spoke is really the owner of the Upper East Side penthouse? Well, the answer will depend on the information we are able to obtain through the extensive public record research. Given the specific uh, jurisdictions in our scenario, the information connecting the property to the Mr. Spoke is, you know, obviously going to be challenging. 
I do want to mention, though, that while we are often involved in situations where we know the information is not going to be readily available via public records, this will always remain our first step as investigators. Because what we are trying to do is put a puzzle together. And while the entire answer may not be in the public records, we may be able to find a puzzle piece or two in public filings that will, you know, will prove to be useful. Keep in mind that the ultimate goal of our investigation is to find sufficient evidence to tie Mr. Spoke as the ultimate beneficial owner of the apartment. This will provide you, as counsel, the ability to get an order that will allow you to seize the asset. Before we continue, Barbara, can you tell us what an ultimate beneficial owner, also referred to as a UBO, is? Sure. So an ultimate beneficial owner is generally understood as the person who directly or indirectly owns, controls, enjoys, or reaps the benefit of an entity or an asset. There are some regulations in the U.S. and abroad that define a UBO more specifically. As indicated in slide 8 of our PowerPoint, the recently enacted Corporate Transparency Act, or CTA, defines a beneficial owner as an individual who directly or indirectly through any contract, arrangement, understanding, relationship, or otherwise, one, exercises substantial control over the entity, or two, owns or controls not less than 25% of the ownership interests of that entity. However, the CTA expressly excludes multiple individuals from the definition of beneficial owner. You can see the complete list on the slide, but of relevance to our presentation today, the CTA specifically excludes an individual acting as a nominee, intermediary, custodian, or agent on behalf of another individual. So in our case study, we will unfortunately not be able to request information obtained under the CTA to discover DCDOSA LLC's recorded beneficial owners. Not only because nominees are specifically excluded, but also because the CTA limits disclosure to either authorized government authorities upon request as set out subject to effective safeguards to facilitate relevant national security intelligence and law enforcement activities and financial institutions for purposes of complying with their customer due diligence requirements under applicable law and regulation. We do not meet either one of these. Further, there are criminal and civil penalties that apply to willful violations of the reporting requirements and to the unauthorized disclosure or use of beneficial ownership information. So Carolina, how else or how accessible is UBO information in public corporate filings? It really depends on the jurisdiction where the company was incorporated or has registered with the relevant authority. In our case, we know DCDOSA is a Delaware LLC. And in Delaware, there's generally limited information and records available since LLCs are not required to file a document indicating the company's members, nor are they required to file, to file annual reports discussing changes in leadership. 
you'll likely be able to obtain the articles of organization and maybe any amendments. Uh, those records can still be useful because they may provide the name of a registered agent or incorporator to whom you can issue a subpoena requesting information about the company's members. You can also keep those names on a list to see if they come up in other instances, which will help you prove your case in court. Julieta, what has been your experience in dealing with Delaware LLCs? Well, as you've already mentioned, Carolina, when trying to identify UBOs, the the data that's filed in Delaware um, can be limited, and this can be frustrating. However, I have worked on cases where the registered agents identified through these filings end up being a critical piece to the developing story. I've had experiences where the government and counsel of the injured party have been able to identify and subsequently depose registered agents, which, you know, as already mentioned, has resulted in, in useful information. In addition, getting corporate formation documents is also going to be critical because we will take these names and absolutely run any and all identified parties through relevant accounting records and databases as part of our investigation. For example, you know, once we identified registered agents, we'll want to know whether they're also listed as vendors of the companies um, and so on and so forth. We've also had a similar experience in relation to Delaware records. Uh, we've previously obtained records where the registered agent or incorporator was actually the attorney often used by the fraudster and his family. This served as indicia that the fraudster was in fact the UBO of the company. Since we're unable to obtain information required under the CTA and we will likely not obtain information regarding the UBO in corporate records, now what do we do? Well, we may consider issuing a subpoena to the registered agent of DCDOSA to provide details of the persons or entity who may be paying annual fees, or uh, we may also request communications regarding the registration or any issues related to the company. We may also obtain a subpoena to the title company involved in the sale of the Upper East Side property for information regarding documents produced regarding um, the sale of the property, who executed the documents, as well as any correspondence regarding same. This may or may not lead back directly to Mr. Spoke or may provide the information of another individual or entity to follow up on. Now let's discuss the BVI and information we might obtain from Dividera. You will likely come across the same impediments as you did in Delaware. You can obtain some records from the BVI commercial registry, but these records will likely not have Mr. Spoke's name listed in them. Nonetheless, you should keep whatever names you identify on a list for future reference. This is a recommendation that you will hear all of us repeat, as you never know what names you will come up frequently during discovery that will allow you to strengthen your links to the fraudster. Further, there are discovery tools available in the BVI that may allow you to obtain additional information, sometimes even under gag and seal, such as a Norwich Pharmacal application, which we will discuss in further detail a little later in our presentation. Notwithstanding these impediments, you should request and review all documents related to the apartment, as you never know what information they may contain. 
some condo associations or mortgage companies will require entities to provide information regarding the UBO of an entity. You may request payment information from these institutions and find that Mr. Spoke is directly paying for the mortgage, property taxes, condo association fees, utilities, etc. All of these things will help prove up your case in court. Based on your experience in these jurisdictions, is there anything else you would like to add, Julieta? Sure. Well, I would add that you would definitely want to request closing documents from the title company. I would expect these sets of documents to include payment information, which would identify relevant party parties and bank accounts. I would also include that from our perspective, the most critical documents are going to, you know, to be the bank statements. It's really the best way to follow the money. Obviously, the bank statements are useful in understanding the inflows and outflows of cash. They will help answer questions such as, you know, where and who are the deposits are coming from? How active the account is? Is the account being used for legitimate expenses? Who is receiving disbursements from the account? Is it, you know, is, is it just the vendors? Is it the executive team members? You know, and just like overall, do the transactions make economic sense? Also, the bank opening documents must provide an account owner and the signature card shed light on who has access to the funds. Another set of useful documents is going to be corporate financial and accounting records. Once we have access to bank and corporate financial and accounting records, we can really begin to forensically uncover layers of concealment. Often we will identify additional parties to subpoena by running searches through these accounting records, vending vendor list, et cetera. We have found that fraudsters are at times not very sophisticated in their naming conventions, especially when the ones that they use to conceal funds. You know, fraudsters become more and more confident over time has been our finding. Correct, Julieta. And the more confident they become or the longer a fraud continues, the more likely you are to see a slip up. Um, I myself recall one time we had a fraudster sign a check for a company on an account where he was not a signatory, which served as indicia that he was in fact the UBO of the company and controlling the accounts. Uh, returning to our discussion on identifying UBOs, as suggested above, in general, you will have difficulty identifying UBOs in various jurisdictions based on their individual requirements for creating an entity. After the Panama Papers, which was a giant leak of financial and legal records that exposed a whole system that enabled crimes, corruption, and wrongdoing hidden through offshore entities, efforts to require states to add information regarding a company's UBO have been commenced by federal, re federal legislators, but to no avail. We have information regarding some specific jurisdictions in our PowerPoint presentation on slides 11 through 15. But for example, most US states don't require private companies to disclose information pertaining to their beneficial owners, especially LLCs. Certain states go as far as promoting themselves as corporate secrecy or tax havens, including Florida, Delaware, Nevada, and Wyoming. As discussed, the CTA now requires certain financial institutions to identify and verify their customers' beneficial owners to the Financial Crime and Enforcement Network 
more commonly referred to as FinCEN. However, this information is not publicly disclosed. Thus, it is uncertain how one can obtain this information if you fall outside of the delineated allowable requesting parties. Other countries have also passed legislation to create beneficial ownership registries, including Denmark in 2014, Norway in 2015, and Portugal in 2017. Um, the legislations themselves are further discussed in our slide. However, even in jurisdictions where a UBO registry exists, entities attempting to conceal their UBOs will provide false information, and there are limitations on verifying the information they provide. This is because there aren't sufficient resources most of the time in these jurisdictions for someone to go out and verify every single piece of information provided by every single company. Juleta, what has been your experience in identifying UBOs in various jurisdictions? Like, what are some of the challenges you've encountered? I have a few that I can quickly share. In my first example, STAT was retained as part of an international investigation involving a French entity. Multiple jurisdictions were involved in this matter, including the U.S. and the U.K. In this case, the STAT team was unable to receive and review any documentation within the U.S. because France restricts the distribution of evidence when investigations are being conducted by foreign jurisdictions. As a result, the STAT team had to fly to Paris to physically review the documents and had to do that a couple of times. In another example, and this one is an example of a criminal case, the U.S. had a mutual legal assistance treaty with a specific country. Um, this is also known as an MLAT. An MLAT is an agreement between the U.S. and certain countries that regulates the way the countries have access to evidence they may be seeking. Because these are negotiated individually, there are different issues to consider. So, um, you know, one must always like look into the specific requirements. Um, for example, some countries required that notice be provided to the individual owner whose information is being sought. In my example, this was problematic because we didn't want the specific individual to be made aware that he was part of an ongoing investigation. Now, some countries have agreed that they will hold off on giving notice for a certain amount of time, for example, 30 days or so. But again, this will vary. So um, we always have to be careful depending on what country we're working with. In general, our role is to follow the money and gather anecdotal evidence. While it takes counsel to get access to the documents, you know, but of course we, we want to do this because we want to maintain privilege. It is our role to identify any themes or links in the financial records. My last example is a Bermuda case. Based on a review of bank records, we identified a trust that was receiving funds. And because we were working so closely with counsel and had an understanding of the individual's profile, we quickly pieced together that the name of the trust was actually a combination of the defendant's children's name, names. When we brought this to the attention of counsel, they were able to subpoena the related um, financial records. So again, in, in piecing you know, the puzzle together, you never know where you're going to find a link. Um, Carolina, what are other tools you've, you've used to identify UBOs? So we've told you about some of the challenges in identifying the UBO of an asset. And so you're probably wondering, what can we do um, to connect our fraudster to the asset. 
Our goal here is to prove that Mr. Spoke is the UBO of that penthouse. So let's begin by discussing some of the legal tools available to help with our investigation into Mr. Spoke. Um, subpoenas are an incredibly powerful tool available to U.S. lawyers that can reveal valuable information to help us make out the web that uh, Mr. Spoke has built to conceal his assets. Subpoenas can help reveal previously unknown assets and also identify new investigative targets like nominees, aiders, and abettors, which we'll talk more about later. Also keep in mind that Mr. Spoke is not from the U.S., so he probably has a contact here to help him manage his assets and affairs. You can often figure out who that contact is based on the responses you receive to your subpoenas. So what type of subpoenas should you issue in this situation, Carolina? So as, as Julieta and, and Barbara have mentioned before, financial records are critical in this type of work. You can send subpoenas to banks and other financial institutions for records related to Mr. Spoke and his companies like DiCidiosa and DiVadera. Assuming any of them have or had U.S. bank accounts, you can find a lot of helpful information in those records. One set of records that you should ask for are account opening documents, which can provide key information such as the identity of the person who opened the bank accounts for the companies like DiVadera and DiCidiosa and other companies that you find that are linked to Mr. Spoke. If Mr. Spoke didn't open those accounts himself, look to see who did. What's that person's relationship to the companies and Mr. Spoke? Has this person come up in any other records identified to date? This is where the list of names we've been talking about comes in handy. Account op opening documents will also reveal who the authorized signatories are for those accounts. You may or may not see Mr. Spoke's name as an authorized signatory for the corporate accounts. If he's not, then keep track of the name or names that do have authority over those accounts. It's always important to look at the account opening documents. As I mentioned a little earlier, we've had situations where checks were signed by the fraudster who was not a signatory to the account and was not listed in any corporate filings. This helped us build a powerful link to the fraudster and the entity. Absolutely, Barbara. You also want to look at know your customer or KYC information. KYC regulations require financial institutions to collect certain information about their customers in order to minimize the use of those institutions for money laundering. In our case, KYC documents can reveal the identities of more companies linked to Mr. Spoke and other potential assets of his. Also keep in mind that depending on the bank, you need to be very specific about the information you request. For example, some banks require you, require you to explicitly request deposit slips and images of canceled checks. Not having this information is challenging when bank statements sometimes only state that a deposit is made in an aggregate amount. A deposit slip, for example, can provide you with details about the various checks and their amounts and any cash. This level of detail may help identify specific checks or amounts that could be linked to other related documentation and help us build a stronger case. Yes, check images are definitely important, Carolina. Um, not only because they provide information of who the check was to, but where the person or the entity that deposited the check was to, so you can issue additional subpoenas if needed. We've also if I, had- 
Yeah. Sorry, if I could just quickly add there, the other thing that I have found really useful in Czech images are um, the memos. So it's it's amazing what you'll find in 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 um, that the frosters will put in the memo line. Correct. You can see the memo lines that actually link um, checks to personal expenses affiliated with the fraudster. So it'll say, you know, uh, rent payment for unit, blah, blah, blah. And exactly. That, exactly. And that unit ends up being the unit where the fraudster is laying or staying. Um, we've also had situations where a check is payable to cash, but the signature in the back of the check is actually that of the fraudster. Those are great examples, ladies. And, you know, it, it may seem obvious, but you should also request the account statements in your subpoenas. Um, the account statements, as, as Julieta was saying, they may show that Mr. Spoke used the corporate accounts for his personal expenses. Uh, for example, you may see that the accounts were used for things like car payments for luxury vehicles or purchases at designer stores, um, charter flights to jurisdictions where the companies don't do any business, payments to auction houses and jewelry stores, and other things that simply don't make sense as corporate expenses. And we'll talk a little bit more later on about why making those links are so important. You can also see where and to whom funds are transferred, who authorize the transfers, and you can identify suspicious transfers, which, for example, can be large lump sum tra transfers, perhaps around the date of future republics insolvency. Yes, and account statements can provide a wealth of information and be used to show that the fraudster is using an account for personal expenses. We've come across corporate accounts with, you know, car loan payments, $2,000 pet spa payments, medical expenses, and mortgage payments, all of which show that the entity is either a nominee or the alter ego of the fraudster. Yeah, and un unless one of the companies is involved with a professional sports league or something, I don't see how they can justify something like the pet spa fees. So um, moving on, in addition to banks and other financial institutions, you should also consider issuing subpoenas to clearinghouses like CHIPS. Those records might reveal more information about how Mr. Spoke and his companies move money, through which banks, the amounts, the timing of the transfers, and information like that. Clearinghouses are important as we typically see funds being transferred via wire and not checks. And they can also provide us information even if neither Mr. Spoke nor his companies had U.S.-based bank accounts. Yeah, the other interesting thing that I see and that we always have to keep in mind when reviewing financial transactions is that sometimes you can identify trends like the timing of um, of when the transfers are taking place can also be can also be telling, especially if you can tie it to you know other suspicious transactions that may be may be occurring outside of the specific bank account you're looking at, for example. Right. And aside from financial institutions and clearing houses, you, you can get creative with your other subpoena targets. In our case, we're looking at a piece of real property and you're trying to find out whether is really the owner of that penthouse. Um, so you should consider issuing a subpoena to the condo association for records about association dues, assessments and, and fines. Maybe you should also ask for information about who the contact person for the penthouse is, if there's an emergency. You know, it's a nice apartment in New York, so there's probably a doorman. Uh, if, if there's a guest, who's the doorman supposed to call for authorization to let that person up? Um, if, you know, 
who's authorized to go into the penthouse without even checking in with the doorman. Also, let's say there's a parking garage, you can request information about cars registered to that apartment. And if you get a hit, then you can use that information to issue a request to the appropriate DMV for vehicle ownership information. Yeah, you never know what you, information you're gonna obtain from a condo association, um, especially with regards to who has access to the unit. We've previously obtained emails and repair records, you know, for uh, air conditioner or anything within the unit where the fraudster himself listed himself as the owner of the unit. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how it's usually a little slip up like that that can really help you make your case. Um, as we've mentioned before, a subpoena to the title company might reveal really great information about payment information for the purchase of the penthouse, who signed the closing documents, um, who the title company was communicating with in the sale of the property and things of that nature. Yeah, and I love that you guys are mentioning communications and slip-ups. One of the things that we've run across is in these email communications, you know, identifying additional people involved or additional aliases just because of who was BCC'd or, you know, copied in an email. Like, you, you can find really useful um, additional parties to subpoena there, for example. Yeah, and the title company will also have a breakdown of the funds received and the funds distributed. This may also lead you to another account under the name of the fraudster or a, you know, a nominee or an aider and a better that you already know of. Yeah, and you know, again, we're looking at a piece of real property here. So another important set of records for you to look at are property tax records. Mr. Spoke may be paying these himself or more likely he's using a non-party to pay them. If you find out that he is paying them himself or has paid them in the past, you may be able to see the source of funds for those payments and issue a subpoena to that financial institution. If he's using a non-party to make the payments, look at Mr. Spoke's bank accounts for any mention of that person or entity that's paying the property taxes. See if the payment dates and amounts correspond to when the taxes were paid. Uh, this is another example, again, you know, where maintaining that list of names that appear in your records comes in handy. And not only payment information, uh, we've seen the tax collector's office list information about where and to who they were sending a refund for overpayment. In that instance, it was particularly relevant because the return was going to the fraudster at another address that was not the one linked to the payment. Yeah, and an another thing to look at is whether there's a, a mortgage on the penthouse. If there is a mortgage, you can issue a subpoena to the lender and you can ask for things like the loan documents, including the loan application, uh, records showing to whom the loan funds were paid and the source of funds for repayment of the loan. You want to look at who's signing the loan documents on behalf of the corporation, because obviously an individual had to sign them. So you want to see who's acting on behalf of the title holder. Correct. And even if the mortgage is under the name of a company and the authorized person is another company, an individual still needs to sign it. So in instances where um, one company is acting as the authorized signer, for example, we've seen mortgage loans issued to company A that were signed by X person as president of company B, which was the authorized member of company A. 
So in our case, we may obtain the name of someone authorized to sign on be, you know, sign for Dividera, the BVI company, as the sole director signing on behalf of Decidiosa. Exactly. Uh, potential source of information are utilities providers. You know, the utilities for the penthouse are probably under the corporate name on the title, but they may reveal the name of the individual behind that company, you know, like a care of or an authorized representative or something to that effect. The utilities providers may also have contact information for an individual in case of an emergency, and their records may also show the source of funds for bill payments. Uh, in our case, and this is something that we touched on earlier, we also want to look at the registered agent for DCDOSA as a title holder of the penthouse. Uh, many entities will use a professional registered agent corporation as their registered agent, and that registered agent won't provide us anything about DCDOSA. But, um, which we've also seen in some of our cases, DCDOSA may have an individual such as an attorney or an accountant or maybe even another entity listed as its registered agent. And that would be fair game for a subpoena. And even if it is a professional registered agent corporation, you can always request records regarding who they've communicated with regarding the company's, you know, payment dues or the source of payment of any transactions they have received related to the company, which can, can again lead you back to an individual who can link you back to the fraudster. Good point, Barbara. Um, so we've been focused on analyzing documents that you receive from subpoenas, but remember that subpoenas for testimony can also be another powerful tool. You can learn a lot to sniff out inconsistencies and potential lies from other investigative targets and even Mr. Spoke himself. Perhaps consider, you should also consider talking to neighbors. Uh, you never know. They may tell you whether they've seen Mr. Spoke entering or leaving the apartment, how often he's there, and other helpful information. Now, if you do issue subpoenas for depositions, use those as an opportunity to ask questions about whether the deponent knows Mr. Spoke personally. If they do know him, you know, ask how they know him, who gives them instructions to take actions with regard to the penthouse or on behalf of the companies, who's paying them for that work, how were they paid, et cetera. If they, let's say they engage in a business transaction with Mr. Spoke or the company, you know, ask them that transaction. Yes, depositions are a very powerful tool. You may even have instances where the fraudster themselves slips up. Um, we've had a situation where the fraudster has testified that they actually used a corporate account to pay for personal expenses in lieu of receiving a payroll. Um, we also had an instance where the fraudster specifically stated that the company was his alter ego. You just never know what a person might divulge at a deposition. Yeah, depositions can definitely get fun depending on, on what happens, especially if you can get the actual debtor in the hot seat. You, shouldn't, you also shouldn't underestimate the power of informal conversations, though. Sometimes people may be willing to talk to you because they've been burned by Mr. Spoken in the past and they want to help. And sometimes they also just don't want their names on a subpoena or any official court record. So they may be willing to volunteer helpful information to you. You definitely want to verify the information that they're providing to you, though, because you never know what their motivation really is. Correct. Sometimes individuals are very afraid to come into a formal proceeding. 
Um, we've had a situation where the former partner of a fraudster came in and provided information regarding the fraudster. Um, they would even call occasionally and follow up with updates on them. However, they did not want to attend the deposition because they feared that the fraudster would retaliate against them in some way. I've had very similar experiences with these informal conversations, um, you know, and they're usually from people who, as was mentioned earlier, at least in my experience, have been um, somehow offended by the fraudster. And, you know, one of the ways that they want to get back to them is by making sure that there's sufficient evidence against them and, and whatever the case may be. Yeah, and as Barbara said before, since, you know, Divadera is a BVI entity, we're going to have to move offshore to complete that part of our investigation. The BVI's protections over Divadera's directors, managers, and owners aren't necessarily a matter of public record. That said, it's just available in some foreign jurisdictions like the BVI called the Norwich Pharmacal Action, which requires you to show an element of fraud in the case. Normative pharmacal relief requires the applicant to present an arguable case that a wrong has been committed. In addition to the more traditional wrongdoings like fraud, uh, the BVI court recently expanded the scope of the Norwich pharmacal jurisdiction to include post-judgment relief and native enforcement, where there's a reasonable suspicion that a disclosure defendant is mixed up in the willful evasion of another's judgment debt. Importantly, especially in our case, Norwich Pharmacal Relief can be obtained under gag and seal. So if you're able to get that, you know, Mr. Spoke may have no idea that you are obtaining this information in the BVI. And as with pretty much every other discovery tool, although you may never know what you might obtain, we've had instances where we've obtained emails um, from a Norwich Pharmacal application where the you know they're discussing who the UBO of the company is or even documents reflecting that the registered agent was holding the shares of the company in trust for the fraudster. Julieta, do you have any investigative tools you can recommend? Uh, working with a reputable private investigator can add tremendous value. Private investigators are oftentimes former government and or law enforcement officers who are knowledgeable and have access to a network of databases and individuals around the world that would be really hard to replicate. Uh, for example, we have been involved in cases where certain public databases can only be accessed by citizens of the specific country we're looking into. In these cases, we have worked with PIs, private investigators, who have been granted access through their robust network of PI firms. Private investigators are typically able to quickly conduct international asset searches and provide reports of their, of their findings. I will add that you should vet your investigators. I and mean, we've had clients who did not and received incorrect information. So just make sure you know and trust the PI or PI firm you are engaging in. Carolina, can you discuss other searches that may be useful in our case study? Sure. So litigation database searches are another useful tool because it can help identify other U.S. litigation involving Mr. Spoke and his companies. Identifying diverse proceedings involving individuals like Mr. Spoke have been used helpful to our practice in the past. 
for example, cases where debtors use a divorce as a way to conceal assets under the spouse's name. Let's assume you find out that Mr. Spoke was recently divorced. Did the divorce around the time that the last order went bankrupt? If so, under his ex-wife's name. But we'll talk more about that later. Litigation searches can also help us identify any bankruptcies for Mr. Spoke or other companies he may have been affiliated with. And these court records could potentially reveal a modus operandi for him. Foreclosure records are another set of records that can reveal Mr. Spoke's activities in other states and help identify new subpoena targets. Sometimes records from other types of commercial cases like breach of contract cases might have information, might have financial information that's useful. Yes, you can unexpectedly get a wealth of information in any given litigation. You can, um, you can always, you should always check the exhibits as well. Sometimes you have bank statements or contracts referencing bank accounts for transfers and other useful information they may link you to the fraudster. You can also look at any UCC filings that may be available. Um, so those may reveal Mr. Spoke's account numbers and other previously unknown assets that may have been disclosed as collateral for a loan. So for example, let's say Mr. Spoke pledged another piece of real property or a valuable asset like a plane or a boat as collateral for a loan. You could get that through the UCC filings. UCC filings can also reflect a debtor's interest in another company as collateral so that you identify um, not only the UCC filing, but you also identify another entity that you have to look into. Definitely. So let's talk about something else. Let's talk about online presence, not just your spoke, but so social media accounts can reveal helpful information in unexpected ways. Uh, Mr. Spoke's accounts and those of his friends and family members may reveal valuable information about Mr. Spoke's whereabouts and his potential assets. Definitely keep an eye on the comment section for clues. Yeah, we've had a debtor who always posted photos in a super yacht and would tag his location. Because of this, we were able to find his location and coordinate service on him. Um, further, all of the posts indicated that this was his yacht, even though it was under the name of an offshore entity. Yeah, Barbara, don't forget the case uh, where we were trying to connect the debtor to a major asset. Let's say, say it was a helicopter, um, and we thought that helicopter was his. Uh, we looked at the social media profiles for someone who we believed to be in the debtor's inner circle, and that individual had pictures of the helicopter on his social media accounts. And then in one of the comments under one of those photos of the helicopter, someone actually referred to our debtor by name. And they said something like, hey, next time ask debtor if I can go for a ride. So, you know, we can see from these examples how social media accounts can be helpful to us, especially the accounts for us friends and family. Remember that you're trying to build a case to present to the judge to link your debtor to a specific asset. So every bit of information you can obtain helps. Another potential scenario, let's say Mr. Spoke has a son or daughter and they have a public social media account and all of a sudden they start to post pictures from New York City. Let's say they post a picture with Mr. Spoke even and they say something like family time. You can send a process server out to serve Mr. Spoke and his family members with subpoenas at that Upper East Side apartment. 
If you're lucky, the process server might even catch Mr. Spoke himself at the apartment. And then you have another piece of evidence connecting him to that penthouse. Uh, Mr. Spoke holds himself out as a businessman. So look at the corporate websites for companies we know are linked to him. The websites might have information about where Mr. Spoke does business and how much revenue his companies report. Correct, and companies may also have audited financial reports av available on their websites that provide ownership interest information, um, not to mention any professional biographies that may list additional corporate entities affiliated to the fraudster that you will need to follow up on. Yeah, and also look to see if you can find things like press releases and other media about Mr. Spoke and his companies. For example, he may have recently been photographed at, let's say, a benefit auction. You now have intel about other potential assets that he has, and you can think about issuing a subpoena to the auction house to find out what else he's bought from them, how he paid for those purchases, whether he sold any assets through them, you know, when those things of that nature. Correct. We've even come across interviews where the fraudster is discussing an asset they own, which records indicated was owned by an offshore entity. Uh, this is also an area where PI firms have been instrumental. For example, we have partnered with firms where we provide a list of relevant parties and they are able to run searches quickly and, and efficiently. There are different analysis that they can run, including an analysis that links usernames and passwords across the web. So the findings there are usually pretty, um, pretty interesting, and they have provided us with new accounts and parties to, to investigate. Yes, PI firms may also have access to databases that run searches across multiple publications that require subscriptions and can also narrow searches to a specific jurisdiction or language which helps filter out incorrect findings. Forensic accounting analysis of records received. Th this topic was discussed in an earlier podcast of Secor Law summer series called uh, Deconstructing Fraud, Entering the Mind Through a Financial Investigation. Um, but basically, again, we have to treat every bit of information you get as a potential thread in Mr. Spoke's web. Follow it through as far as you can using subpoenas, depositions, investigators, and the other tools we've discussed. We'll explain why the follow through is so important next. Um, but before we do that, um, in order to comply with New York regulations, attorneys looking for CLE credit in New York will need to be able to provide a code. This code is not intended for West Legal Ed Center audience, either live or on demand. I will read this code twice and only twice and cannot repeat it or email it to you. So please make note of it. The New York State code number is S as in Sam, A as in Apple, 31156-83121. Again, the New York State code number is S as in Sam, A as in Apple, 31156-83121. Now, getting back to our discussion, Carolina, what's next in our investigation of Mr. Spoke and his companies? So you've launched your investigation and you notice that there's a name that appears all over the records you received so far, and that's the name of Milo Zen. 
Mr. Zen is an authorized signatory for DCDOSA's accounts, and the bank records for DCDOSA LLC reflect a strange mailing address. And once you look into that mailing address, it's actually linked to an accounting firm called Myth Eternal PA, where Mr. Zen happens to be a partner. Mr. Zen has authorized transfers from DCDOSA's account to, for example, the Association for the Building where the Penthouse is located. Also, we got the documents from the Norwich Pharmacal Action, the BBI, and it turns out that Mr. Zen is a director of Dividera SA. So now we have several questions about Mr. Zen and his firm's relationship to Mr. Spoke, DCDOSA, and Dividera. What exactly does Mr. Zen do for the companies? Who's telling him to transfer funds from Sidious's account? What can he tell us about who really owns Penthouse? Does he know Mr. Spoke? How much does he know about Mr. Spoke's assets? To better answer these questions, you'll first need to understand how fraudsters like Mr. Spoke use individuals such as their family members and professionals like Mr. Zen and corporate structures to conceal their assets. Barbara, what can you tell us about this? Well, it's unlikely that a fraudster will have many people handling their assets just because it becomes unmanageable, right? So usually fraudsters will have a few trusted individuals that they use repeatedly to conceal their assets. Thus, given Mr. Zen's involvement, we will now take a look at Mr. Zen's assets and see if there are additional links that we can get between him and his assets and the assets used by Mr. Spoke and his family. For example, are there vehicles registered to Mr. Zen that Mr. Spoke or his family members use? Are there additional entities affiliated with Mr. Zen that are also affiliated with Mr. Spoke or his family members or assets used by them, such as an entity that owns a yacht frequently used by Mr. Spoke? All of these links strengthen your claim that Mr. Zen is a nominee or an aider and a better of Mr. Spoke and that the companies we've identified are really Mr. Spoke's alter egos. Now let's discuss what these words mean in the context of our fraud case. So a nominee is an individual or entity that an individual uses as the title holder of an asset to hide his interests in it. In our case study, DCDOSA and DiVadera are examples of nominees. Julieta, what type of nominees do you generally identify in your investigations? Well, similar to the present case, um, you know, I'm often going to see that there's fictitious, you know, shell companies. Sometimes I've seen charities, both fictitious and not fictitious charities, not-for-profit organizations that are that are run by the individuals, friends, love interest, ex-love interest, uh, holding companies, subsidiary companies, and sometimes even family members. Correct. These are the types of uh, nominees that we usually come across as well. So now let's discuss an alter ego. An alter ego exists when an individual ignores corporate separateness, making the entity and individual one and the same. This allows you to pierce the corporate veil and go after a company and its assets directly. The test to prove alter ego and allow you to pierce the corporate veil will depend on the US, state, or foreign jurisdiction you are in. In Florida, we use the two-pronged test established by the Florida Supreme Court in Dania Hialeah v. Sykes. You can see the two-pronged test in slides 22 to 23. But essentially, you must prove that the shareholder dominated or controlled the corporation to an extent where it was a mere instrumentality or 
uh, or rather and that the corporate form was used to for an illegal purpose or to fraudulently mislead creditors and evade liability. Carolina, what type of information do you use as evidence in support of an alter ego argument before the court in our case study? So this is where we can look at the information we've gathered using the tools we discussed before, like our subpoenas and our depositions and our interviews. You need to put together every bit of information you've gathered linking Mr. Spoke to DCDOS and DFDERA and that in order to link him to that Upper East Side penthouse. So, for example, if we obtained account statements from DCDOSA LLC and DVDERA SA showing that Mr. Spoke used these companies to fund, to fund his personal lifestyle, then you could potentially ask the court to pierce the corporate veil. Remember, you're looking for personal expenses like childcare costs, veterinary expenses, the pet spa that Barbara mentioned, you know, luxury vehicle payments, and other things that really just don't make sense as corporate expenses. It's a relatively easier case to prove if the companies have been used in this manner since their inception. It does become more difficult in situations where the company is created for a legitimate legal purpose and then later on converts to an alter ego of the fraudster, but it's not impossible. So the same is generally true if the fraudster places his assets into the company to avoid creditors rather than you know, take the company's assets for his personal use. So in Florida, the big case on this, as you can see on slide 24 of your materials, is Estudios Proyectos e Inversiones de Centroamérica SA versus Swiss Bank Corp. If you're able to pierce the corporate veil, the controlling shareholders can be held liable for the company's liabilities. The same rules are applicable to obtain the assets of a corporation when the corporate sh when the controlling shareholder used the corporation to hide his personal assets to defraud creditors. So if we see that Mr. Spoke transferred his assets into DCDOSA and DVDERA, and he continues to use them as personal assets, we may be able to pierce the corporate veil under the Estudio standard. In addition to potentially commence, commencing fraudulent transfer actions or proceeding supplementary, uh, which we'll discuss shortly. Again, we gave the example of a Florida case, but most if not all states should have some method to pierce the corporate veil. So you should confirm that standard in your jurisdiction. All right, Barbara, what's next? So now we turn to our second category, aiders and abettors, which are individuals and entities that assist in obscuring the ownership of an entity or an asset. These could be nominees, family members, banks, financial institutions, lawyers, accountants, money launderers, etc. Um, these individuals may be held accountable under certain circumstances. So, for example, in our case study, we suspect that Mr. Zen and his accounting firm are aiders and abettors in Mr. Spoke's scheme. Keep in mind that aiders and abettors are not necessarily aware that they're part of a fraud scheme. So Mr. Zen may have thought that the funds he was transferring on behalf of DCDOSA or actually for legitimate purposes and had no knowledge of the fraudulent intent behind them. However, the more connections you draw between Mr. Zen and Mr. Spoke across multiple entities or assets, the more likely he is aware of the scheme to conceal by Mr. Spoke. Julieta, what recommendations do you have for investigating Mr. Zen and his accounting firm? Well, obviously subpoenas, which we have already discussed extensively for um, documents and depositions to both Mr. Zen and his firm. Uh, more importantly, the questions we want answered include, you know, what type of lifestyle is Mr. Zen living? You know, for example, have there been any major asset purchases made by Mr. Zen during our relevant time period? 
assuming that we can subpoena the accounting firm's documents, we'd want to know what percentage of Mr. Zen's business does Mr. Spoke make up? You know, uh, also, are there any bank transactions between the parties? Is there any indication that Mr. Zen is keeping a fee, in other words, a kickback, from any of the collections he is receiving? Who handles Mr. Spoke's business affairs? Is it Mr. Zen personally, or does he have other folks that are working with him? Does Mr. Zen perform similar services for other clients? Do Mr. Zen and Mr. Spoke engage socially? Do they take trips together? Um, this is another, another area where social media might be helpful. Is Mr. Spoke following the business best practice of switching auditors every five years, or have they been business partners for a very long time? Does Mr. Zen run a reputable business? Does he, does the firm have multiple partners or is he like a sole owner? Does the size of Mr. Spoke's company match the size of the accounting firm? You know, again, at the end of the day, we are putting this puzzle together. We have to work at adding up links to strengthen the argument that the asset belongs to our suspected fraudster. We have to make reference to every single connection, even if it's, it seems to be a minor one. We do this keeping in mind that we need to really paint a cohesive picture and can't simply speculate. Carolina will now discuss how we go about getting the asset. So, you know, Mr. Zen was very cooperative. Uh, he didn't fight us at all and he gave us all the information we wanted. So now we have a clear connection between Mr. Spoke and that Upper East Side penthouse we're looking at. So, for example, we have several emails from Mr. Spoke to Mr. Zen telling him to move funds through DCDOS's account to pay the association dues. You know, and Mr. Zen confirmed to us that Mr. Spoke appointed him as director of DVDERA. Our analysis of the accounting records that Mr. Zen gave us revealed several indications of fraud. So it looks like we might be ready to make our case to the U.S. court to get that penthouse. And, you know, the way we go about that really depends on the type of proceeding we already commenced in the U.S., you know, we've talked already about alter ego uh, and piercing the corporate veil and how we can go about obtaining such a determination that Mr. Spoke used the corporations of his alter ego. And that would allow us to pierce the corporate veil and attach the assets of DCDOSA and DVDERA. Uh, we may also consider commencing proceedings supplementary, which are designed for the attachment of property of a judgment debtor that was allegedly you know, fraudulently transferred to a third party with the express intent to delay, hinder, or defraud creditors of the judgment debtor. Proceedings supplementary are allowed under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 69, which governs executions on money judgments. And in Florida, proceedings supplementary are codified under Florida Statute 5629, as you can see on slide 31 of your materials. In your state, this type of proceeding may be called something different, but you probably have something similar to what we've described here. And for example, we've commenced proceeding supplementary in a case very similar to our case study. We had a judgment against a debtor and he was residing in a condo in Miami owned by a BVI entity, which was originally under his name. Thus we commenced proceeding supplementary against the entity as a third party holding an asset of the debtor. Yeah, and you may also wanna consider a cause of action for fraudulent transfer, which exists in most jurisdictions. Um, since Barbara and I are licensed in Florida, we'll give you the example of how fraudulent transfer claims work in our state. So under Florida law, a plaintiff alleging fraudulent transfer has to show that the transfer was made uh, by a debtor or the transfer made by the debtor was fraudulent as to the creditor. 
whether the creditor's claim arose before or after the transfer was made or the obligation incurred, or if the debtor made the transfer or incurred the obligation with actual intent to hinder, delay, or defraud any creditor of the debtor. Um, and, you know, that's, it's often hard to prove actual intent. So existing case law under the Uniform Fraudulent Transfer Act looks to indicia of intent commonly known as badges of fraud. And you can see the requirements for fraudulent transfer claims on slides 32 to 33 of your materials. We've had multiple fraudulent transfer actions in which the main badges of fraud are that the debtor transferred to an insider, usually a family member, and that the debtor retained possession of the asset. For example, we have a case where the debtor purchased a condo unit prior to executing a loan with our client. Six days after defaulting on the loan, the debtor transferred the property to himself and his wife. After the client commenced proceedings abroad against the debtor regarding the loan, the debtor transferred the property solely under the wife's name. Carolina, can you explain the difference between a proceeding supplementary and a fraudulent transfer action? Sure. So, so briefly, the main difference between commencing proceeding supplementary versus a fraudulent transfer action is that uh, the former, the proceeding supplementary, are commenced within the original case, whereas a fraudulent transfer action is filed as a separate claim. That's not to say that you can't commence a proceeding supplementary case based on a tra fraudulent transfer claim. Also keep in mind that most jurisdictions in the U.S., including Florida, have remedies specifically related to LLCs in their jurisdiction that may allow you to obtain a charging order or a charging lien against the LLC. So, for example, if the facts of our case were a little bit different and we were actually talking about a Florida LLC rather than a Delaware LLC, we may be able to seek remedies under Florida law. And the relevant Florida statute, if you have a judgment against the debtor and, you know, through discovery, you identify that the fraudster is the sole member of that Florida LLC, you can ask the court to hold a foreclosure sale of the debtor's interest in the LLC. You know, if you establish that distributions under a charging order will not satisfy the judgment within a reasonable time. If the debtor is not the sole member of the LLC, then you can ask the court to enter a charging order to satisfy the judgment from the judgment debtor's interest in a limited liability company or rights to distributions from the LLC. Once again, thank you for joining us today for the last podcast of the Secor Law Summer Series, The Tangled Web They Weave, Detangling the Web of Nominees, Aiders, and Abettors. Please feel free to reach out to us for copies of any of the cases or statutes referenced or reach out to us if you would like to receive our newsletter. We're on all social media platforms, so feel free to follow us. And feel free to contact us with any questions. Uh, we have resources in many jurisdictions. Um, you can see our interactive world map on our website, which discusses some of the cases that we are involved in worldwide.